So this morning, I don't typically, as you know, um, use too much media in the sermons and the delivery. It's probably one of maybe two or three times in all the time we've been here at Redeemer. Um, but I, I found that maybe this would be helpful as I was preparing this, this sermon this week, thinking maybe just some... So a significant portion of Luke, right, is that point when we covered uh, maybe a month or so back that our Lord is now moving toward Jerusalem, This is a significant theme within the book itself. So as you're reading, as you're hearing sermons on Luke, you're now considering the movement of the passage, how how it's growing in its intensity, how the narratives are shaping, the discussions are coming about, what the kind of sense of um, angst between our Lord and his detractors, what, what those interactions are like, is based on the movement toward Jerusalem, at this point, and we handle um, Luke 11, we're roughly somewhere probably a, a few months away from the cross event. So quite naturally, the confrontations in the text are going to get more intense. The language is going to get more definitive um, as our Lord speaks, because that's roughly where we're at now in his lifespan, in his ministry, a few months away from the cross events. Um, and the movement continues toward Jerusalem then, of course. Um, let me see if this makes sense. Last time I used this, I, um, my son talked to me just about how it bounced around like crazy. Um, I kind of have uh, shaky hands, so I'm going to show it to you, but it'll probably not be very helpful. But um, So I'll try to study as much as I can. Just by way of introduction, just a, a little thing here. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Right? And, and you recall where we were at in chapter 10. I just want to note for you, if you look back at chapter 10, real, just real quick, just to see how we can best understand our text this morning by considering what's brought us to this point of what our Lord is saying about Jonah and the woman, uh, uh, the queen, and Solomon, and so forth. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Um, so at this point, you see verse 13, Chorazin, you see Tyre, Sidon, you see um, Capernaum in verse, verse 15. This is up here. So Capernaum is right here, Chorazin right here in this area, right, right there in his ministry. So in, the, in verse 16, he says, the one who hears you, to, and this is to the 72, to his disciples, hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, and this, this is the definitive statement here in the text, verse 16, rejects me. This is a summarizing kind of statement on his ministry right here in Galilee. Capernaum kind of functioning somewhat as a home base for much of his ministry at that point in time. So the broader section of Galilee, he is putting forth a word of judgment for that entire region in this statement as he then begins to move southward. So it's kind of a sense of summarizing his ministry there in Galilee is this word of judgment. These folks have come together and rejected me. How so? Definitively. Well, he sent the 72 disciples out and they rejected them. And so he said, woe to you, for the day of judgment will come for you. Summarily, they have rejected the Lord and his ministry altogether. So now he is, once again, moving toward Jerusalem. Now, here, after that kind of summary portion, he's somewhere down in this region. As you see the the area there, Samaria, 
right? So Samaria, if you look back at verse 9 and, and the chronology of events here a, a little bit, I'm not sure exactly where in Samaria he was. If you look at chapter 9, verse 51, so there's somewhere where he's, where he's sending out the 72 in this region of Galilee. He summarizes a word of judgment to them for how they behave, but he's somewhere in this area. I'm not exactly quite certain in Samaria, but you notice verse 51 of chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So again, the descent is beginning to move all the way down here toward Jerusalem. And he sent men ahead of him to make preparations as his face was set toward Jerusalem. So the movement is southward here. And notice what the interactions were like. So now you remember Galilee has a summary of judgment. Interestingly, note what he says here in the Samaritan area, verse 53. But the people did not receive him. So his messengers came and said, make preparations. The Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, is passing through here. And they said, no, he can't, he, we don't want him. So then some responded that way. Verse 54 says, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down and incinerate them? Do you just want us to take care of them right here and right now? Where's their response to the Samaritan situation, the Samaritan villages? Now, um, Notice it's interesting how the Lord responds. Uh, But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Interesting how he views the Samaritans in his ministry. Kind of laying the groundwork um, for going forward in the story of the church in the missionary endeavors and so forth, but how he speaks to the disciples more pointedly, telling them to show mercy. As he moves toward now, as we continue through Samaria here, so Galilee, a summarization of ministry. It's, it's, the ministry is done here, and the word is bad. He passes through Samaria now, southward bound, and he's coming to this area right here, just outside Jerusalem. So, oh, in fact, you can see it, uh, Bethany, right there, right underneath Jerusalem. That is where we have seen, if you look over in 1038. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village in chapter 1038. That village there, Mary and Martha, is that section of Bethany there. So, it's somewhere uh, within probably five miles or so of Jerusalem. So, all of that to suggest that the intensity of the discussions is only going to increase. Our Lord, while he was in Bethany, there, as you saw last week, and this brings us to last week's sermon, Pastor Dan gave us a sermon on the exorcism there in verse 14 of chapter 38, uh, or, or excuse me, um, chapter, verse 14 of chapter 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So having conducted ministry here, having a preaching ministry there, having performed that exorcism very positively, 
The people are gathering together now to pass a judgment on him. Um, if, if you look at the text, verse 29, notice just what's taking place with the crowds. Verse 29 of the 11th chapter is where we'll begin this morning in just a moment. But when the crowds were increasing... So he has conducted ministry here. He has performed the exorcism here. He met Mary and Martha here in this village just outside Jerusalem, and he's on his way toward Jerusalem. If you look over in chapter 12, just one one more moment before we begin here. In verse 12, just how much are the crowds increasing? Now that he's performed ministry, now that he has this exorcism, and he is there for some portion of time just outside Jerusalem, we know that word is spreading, right? Word is spreading like wildfire that Jesus of Nazareth is here and that he is performing ministry. The crowds are increasing as he moves toward the cross. Chapter 12 gives us some insight into just how much. In the meantime, chapter 12, verse 1, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And then he begins to speak. At this point, again, as the crowds increase by the thousands to hear the Lord's message, he continues to get more pointed, more direct, and more confrontational. In a sense, urgent about the message of the gospel. That's where we see this morning our text come into play. Here in our text, the people of Judea, so once again, this area here, and it's kind of like with Galilee. Not, we don't have a record of every person in Galilee's response. We know there was faith. We know some were healed. We know some grew. We know some trusted in his ministry and his person for sure. But when we come to summarize Galilee and his ministry, it was one of judgment. Now we're coming together in the same situation is happening here in Judea just outside of Jerusalem, it's a way in which he is summarizing overall the response of the people to his ministry unto them. And there's a large crowd gathered, and yet they are coming together in a sense and officially rejecting Christ as Lord. They're rejecting him as the Messiah. Now, they don't do it in very soft terms either. If you notice once again chapter 11 up higher in the text in verse 15, Some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So in other words, they essentially have accused him of being demon-possessed himself. So instead of submitting to him, instead of receiving his ministry, they have turned and actually called him demon-possessed. Now, why is this so significant about the judgment that they are to receive? Notice, they prove in that statement to be the exact opposite of the people of verse 28. And that's where our message really begins this morning. Verse 28, but he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is in stark contrast to the people of Judea. Direct contrast to the people of Galilee. Those who heard his sermons preached. Those who saw the exorcisms themselves. Those who saw him heal the lame. Those who saw him heal the blind. They heard the word of God. 
and chose not to keep it. They came together as a community and said, I don't know. He seems demon-possessed to me. This is the contrast that's in the text of those who receive the word in hearing it and they possess it with faith and keep it and those who reject it. And it's this sense of blessing and cursing that moves forward in our text this morning. Just to be clear, the question at the end of the text is going to be this. I'll give it away up front. The question of the text is, are you blessed in the hearing of the word of God? Or are you one who rejects it? Blessed are those who hear it and keep it. And conversely so, we see in the passage, cursed are those who hear it and reject it. Let's look at the text a little um, more closely. Verse 29 Again, the crowd has gathered, and and this is how he's viewing the crowd in kind of a, a summary fashion. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, so far they have only said of him, he's demon-possessed. So he says in response to them, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So Jesus points to their desire for a sign as evidence of their being evil. Notice the text. This is an evil generation. Okay, fine and well. And then he goes on to explain how. It seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it. You see, they are similar to the unbelieving and self-righteous lawyer who we, who we passed in chapter 9, who sought to test Jesus, not humbly submit to him, but test him and examine him, according to what? His own understanding and his own sense of right and wrong standards. He put the Lord on the hot seat. Instead of being examined, he turned and examined him. And and so our Lord speaks of the crowds that are gathering. He says, this is an evil generation. How so? It seeks for a sign. In other words, they are essentially starting this way as they look at the Lord. They're from their own vantage point saying, well, let me put it to you like this. If you are not demonic... Prove it. Do you see? They're turning the judgment. They start with themselves as the gatekeepers of all that is right. And from their own sense of self-understanding, their own sense of knowledge, their own purpose of holding facts, they say, we don't need to submit to you. You need to prove to us that you are who you say you are. From our vantage point, best we can say is you're demon-possessed. So if you're saying you're not, prove it. 
This is what it means to seek for a sign. They are demi- their, their sense of demanding a sign from the Lord is nothing else, nothing other than an act of self-righteous pride. In their minds, he must prove to them to be something other than a servant of the devil. If you consider this for a moment, if that is the case with the issue of seeking a sign, is prideful self-assertion, that sense of, I know, and the knowledge begins and ends with me. And you must prove yourself to me. If this is taking place within the text, and our Lord then says, that is evil in this generation, then think about this just for a moment. Just how much it tells us about the reality of the human condition. Just how blind are we to righteousness? Here, there is a reference in the text to Solomon and the queen seeking the wisdom of Solomon's God. She heard that Solomon was brilliant and he's executing a a, a wonderful kingdom, uh, displaying tremendous amounts of wisdom, and she takes effort to travel a very far distance to go hear the wisdom of Solomon because she had heard that his God had given her such wisdom. And yet here, wisdom personified. And Jesus Christ. And those who see it in proximity, right here in front of their face, associate it with demonic presence. Find him to be demon-possessed. Find him to be something other than something greater than Solomon. This vividly portrays just how predisposed each of us are in our natural state to reject what God has done in Christ. We are not those naturally predisposed to sit and humbly receive the word preached and to be those blessed individuals who hear it and heed it. But rather this shows our natural propensity born by natural generation of human parents, our natural Inclination is to absolutely reject the word of the Lord. When I worked at uh, FedEx for a season of time when I was in seminary, um, Dan chuckles because he worked there as well. Um, Very interesting time. And I was on the, uh, we loaded planes with cargo for FedEx at the airport. And here is a plane, big, huge plane door open, and we're loading stuff into it. And, and we're looking out at the tarmac, and there was another FedEx plane that was parked right there. And I was talking to my coworker about, um, about the Lord, and we were just in a, in a discussion about um, Christ. And he says to me, well, I'll tell you what would make it so much easier for me to believe. is like, for instance, if he came down right now, and lifted that plane up right in front of me. That would be a lot easier for me to believe in him then. And he was absolutely convinced of that. No matter what I said about it, he was absolutely convinced. If he would just appear to me, if he would just show up, if he would prove himself to me, I would do nothing but 
believe and embrace. And that is essentially the same thing that the people of Judea are saying to him as well. Prove yourself to me. Empirically appear in the extraordinary. But you see, even though he did extraordinary ministry among them, healing a demon-possessed individual, what was the response? I would absolutely believe in you if you would just do something powerful. What was the response of the people? It cannot be what just happened. You must be demon-possessed. This portrays just how dark sin in its captivity is in the soul of every human being. Apart from the grace of God in our lives, through the preaching of the word, through the hearing of the gospel by the power of the spirit, there is no amount of empirical evidence that we will submit to in the area of the gospel. This text portrays just how dark the human condition is, and there is nothing but the word that sets the heart free. That is why he says, blessed are, not those who see a plane get lifted on a tarmac, but blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Notice what he says to them next regarding this issue of an evil generation. Verse 29 again, he says, When the crowds were increasing, began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. In other words, If you look at the text, he says, no sign will be given it except the sign that I'm going to give to it. So what exactly is he saying here? If we join and think of it together in the human condition, Jesus refuses to provide unto the doubting crowd the sign they want. That sense of submitting to them. Okay, tell me how high I can jump and you'll believe. Okay, tell me what else I can do and you'll believe. This sense of how can I prove it to you since you, again, hold the knowledge, the authority, the awareness, the understanding. How can I prove myself to you? Brother, he says, I won't do any such thing. You will receive no sign in terms of what you demand or what you want, but rather I will provide the sign of Jonah. Now, Think about this uh, twofold. There are two overlapping elements when we're broadly speaking about the sign of Jonah. So there's a lot going on with the sign of Jonah. And we're trying to piece together more simply what does it mean here in this particular text. Two overlapping considerations broadly with Jonah and our Lord. Number one, they both preach the word of God. Both Jonah and our Lord preach the word of God. Secondly, they both saw the word accomplish what it was set out to do. They both experienced in their preaching ministries men who received and repented and were saved. They both experienced the power of the preached word. But the central point of the analogy here about the sign of Jonah, I'm sure you're well aware, is the sign of resurrection. That's the sign that is going to be provided. If you have them, just turn over to Matthew 12. Look at Matthew 12 just briefly to fill this text in of exactly how we get there on the sign of Jonah. What is the central point of the sign of Jonah that will be provided to this generation? 
If you're there in chapter 12, begin in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So this is its parallel story from Luke and Matthew sharing the same thing. But notice how Matthew defines it a little bit more. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Once again, the, the purpose of their, the, the extent of their evil is connected to their desiring an empirical evidence or an empirical sign from him. That, 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 that is evil. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then here Matthew records a little more uh, uh, thoroughly regarding what that sign is. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here Matthew zeroes in in his record of our Lord speaking to the people of Judea. He zeroes in a little more specifically on the idea of the sign of Jonah, specifically being the events of the resurrection. Now, if Jonah was a sign of resurrection to the people of Nineveh, how how is that so? So consider Jonah is in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights. If you've been in Sunday school as a child, you've heard this story or sang it, song, and then throughout you've probably heard sermons preached on it or you have a reference point for the story of Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and then spit out. Then you recall in the book of Jonah, he goes afterward to the city and then he begins to preach. Now, here in this text, if you're back in Luke, in verse 30, it says, For Jonah became a sign. In verse 30, it says, Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. How did he, showing up in Nineveh, become a sign to the people of Nineveh? They were not witness to the great fish event. They were not witness to it. Yet he became a sign to the people of Nineveh somehow about being in the belly of a fish and then coming out three days later. He served as a sign to the people of Nineveh. How? If they weren't there and they didn't see him get swallowed and then they didn't see him get spit out and then him tell them right there on the beach, this is what occurred to me. How then did he serve as a sign between his preaching and his event to the people of Nineveh? It seems to indicate here in the text that Jonah simply included in his preaching to the people of Nineveh the story of being entombed by the great fish for three days. He included this in his sermon or in his series of sermons that he preached at Nineveh. You remember, it's a large, large city. He had to preach a lot in order to preach through Nineveh. And he connected his preaching ministry to the story that occurred to him of being swallowed three days and being spit out. He included this in his preaching ministry, and in so doing, the people of Nineveh received a sign of death and resurrection. Now, how much they knew about death and resurrection from the sign of Jonah being in the belly of a fish three days and then them, him telling them, I don't know what his sermon sounded like. It had been interesting. You won't believe what happened to me. Like, I, I, I'm on a run from, from a sovereign God. I got on a boat. I knew it was me who was the troublemaker. They threw me over. I told them they could. I got swallowed by a fish. 
I was in his guts three days. And then he spit me out, and here I am. You know, did they say, oh, that sounds like death and resurrection. So I wouldn't think so. They probably weren't piecing it right together. That, oh, the gospel of the law and the gospel, what I'm hearing from your God is one that brings me to everlasting life and a final resurrection and judgment. Because you were in the belly three days, right? I'm not, they're probably not piecing that together. However, there is something included in the preaching of Geneva, Nineveh, Jonah to Nineveh, Nineveh, if we were to combine them, Jonah to Nineveh, that served to them, that brought them to a state of repentance and reception. Something about death and resurrection that is included in the preaching. It served as a signpost to them. Now again, how thoroughly and how, how far, I, I'm not sure. But the connection being made here between the sign that will be given to you, this evil generation, is the sign of Jonah. Matthew made clear, what is he shorthanding? Resurrection. How is it like Jonah? He will die or he will be entombed as Jonah was entombed. It will be for a period of three days. And then like Jonah, in the sign, getting spit out, I will come out three days later. And just as Jonah then went about preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God, and spoke in some way of resurrection, as that was a sign... I will be the thing signified. I will lay my life down. In three days, I will take it up and I will appear to many preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is the sign that will be provided to this evil generation. It's none other than a reference to the resurrection of our Lord. Now, You think at this point in the text, great, when they see the resurrection, they'll all repent. He'll appear, he'll be there for roughly 40 more days, he'll be teaching the disciples, he'll be preaching about the kingdom of God, which we see in Acts 1, and people everywhere will repent. But notice what our Lord says regarding their response to the sign of resurrection, verse 32. We'll finish verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth, as he says here, the ends of the earth. It was a long ways from Solomon. She came a long, long way. By the way, she was a female, right? Queen. Amazing. What a rebuke to these men. They would have understood that culturally. The queen, she didn't, she didn't have it like, oh, right there, somewhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. She, they weren't there, right? They, 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 they are there. They are there. They are there. She was over here. What a rebuke. It's right here in your midst. And you say, best case scenario is I'm demon-possessed. 
she will rise up at the judgment and serve as witness against you. Further, this final word of judgment, of resurrection, then will serve also for something greater than Solomon is here. Wisdom is personified right here in me. Again, when he does verse 28, he preaches the word of God. Hear it and heed it. Something greater than Solomon's wisdom is here. I'm the source of Solomon's wisdom. And yet, I'm, I'm right here in your neighborhood. Right here. And you don't want anything to do with it. So the queen who came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon will stand and rebuke you. Stand as judgment witness. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh, back to the sign of Jonah, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And here I've been in your midst. I have preached. I have healed. I have called to repentance. And you want nothing to do with it. But to label it demonic. To utterly reject it. Nineveh was simply, Jonah was a sign. But I am the thing signified. What he pointed to, here I am. And when I resurrect, you will not repent. The men of Nineveh then, and that great eschatological judgment, which each of us will face, a final judgment, of which he's referring to here, a final day of judgment. All will be resurrected. All will appear to be judged. And here are these individuals who saw him right here for the better part of two and a half years, preaching, healing, ministering, passing through 72 witnesses that came and preached throughout these villages. As he passed through down here to Bethany, the event of Lazarus bringing him out from the grave. Bethany, two miles, roughly two to five miles outside Jerusalem. Bethlehem where he was born. All right here. Right in front of them. And they utterly reject him. And label him demonic. And he says, all of these people here, right in your midst, the men of Nineveh will rise in this picture of judgment. They will be there at judgment. The folks from the village. And the men of Nineveh will rise and they will stand as evident witnesses. That they heard the word preached through Jonah and they received it with faith and repentance. And you gazed upon something greater than Solomon. You heard the preaching that Jonah alluded to. And you saw him in your midst. And you absolutely rejected him. The question of the text then is this, as I said to you at the beginning. In the hearing of the preaching of the word of God, as the church of Christ, we we have a full canon of Holy Scripture. We hear him through the word preached, as we say, and we see him in the table, his body broken for you. And we possess so much clearer picture of redemption than Jonah, than the Ninevites, than even the folks in the villages. 
So the question is this. What would the people of Nineveh say about you? What would they say about your hearing? Would they stand as evident witnesses? As those who were hungry to hear the word preached to them. And we don't need to rehearse all the Assyrians were like. A brutal bunch. Eagerly heard the word that Jonah preached. And they were brought to faith and repentance. Then they'll gaze upon us, perhaps in this eschatological picture. And what would they say of us? All that we could hear every Lord's Day, possessing the word of Scripture in your home. Luke will get there, chapter 12. Well, I should say I will get there sometime in chapter 12. And you have that parable there that ends with, to whom much is given, much more shall be required. Father, thank you for a few moments in your word this morning. Thank you for